welcome to those that have found our podcast, a 30,000 foot view, just one of a stream of new podcasts coming out of the team at the Go Agency. Here we discuss marketing and business and where the world currently finds itself, speaking to the leading voices in these areas and how things have changed in marketing and advertising. I'm Sam Fowler, Senior Account Manager here at the Go Agency, and joining me as always, Miss Aaron Shepard, one of the three founders here at the Go Agency. Hello, Aaron. Hello, Sam. Great to be here as always. How are you, sir? I'm super excited for our guest now. We've we've got um, Dan Gilbert on. I've 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 followed him for the last four, probably four or five years. He's I've always felt like Brain Labs were an example of what we were sort of chasing at Goat, um, mainly from a sort of growth scale culture, sort of the way that they're different. Um, I met Dan for the first time about a year ago. I just I actually got. I, I came in with um, with your chairman. He just brought me into your office while Dan was having lunch. I just stood there for twenty minutes. So we have met before, but I'm really, really excited to to pick his thoughts. For those that don't know, um, Dan's the founder and CEO of Brain Labs. Brain Labs, uh, in, incredible agency that I'm sure we'll learn more about. Um, but very, very similar in my mind to the ethos of of disruption and doing things differently that we have. So super excited to to get into it with Dan. Yeah, well, without further ado, joining us this week, uh, he's founder and CEO of digital performance marketing agency Brain Labs, uh, Mr. Daniel Gilbert. Uh, thank you, Dan. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Absolute pleasure to be here. Um, I think to to kick start, I think um, myself included, like obviously I've done a bit of research before the pod, but obviously I haven't had uh, the pleasure of meeting you like Aaron. Uh, it would be great to find out a bit about yourself and Brain Labs in, in general, I guess. Well, um, uh, Brain Lab started about eight, eight or nine years ago, and I think at the time I had I'd been working at Google, which was the most incredible place to work. I mean, I was surrounded by brilliant colleagues working on exciting projects, and and the culture of that place was was just unreal, different level really. But there was there was this kind of observation that I had from working with some of the um, country's largest advertisers that 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 the world of marketing had changed and changed quite quickly. Um, uh, almost overnight in some contexts and, and businesses generally don't ch- or markets don't entirely change that quickly uh, very often but you'd gone from this kind of old paradigm where you had traditional marketing where you had media agencies and creative agencies as quite separate entities then this digital thing came along in the middle and suddenly there was an element of science and that hadn't removed the the kind of creative or commercial necessity of marketing overall it just introduced a new dimension or or new levels of data that hadn't been in there previously so i was working in google as this kind of mathematically minded marketer uh observing how traditional agencies were approaching this new this new channel and it really was an add-on at the time this was back in 2012 thinking wow there's got to be a better way to do this harnessing the power of data automation as well as being creative and commercial at the same time so sort of spotted that opportunity uh, set up brain labs in my parents attic so it was just me at the beginning uh, uh, and you know the, the kind of story goes from there we've gone from one to 400 people in those in those eight years um, uh, it's been a super fun journey I suppose we spend more of the time or I spend more of the time looking forwards than I do looking backwards um, but when I do get the chance to uh, join things like this and, and reflect it's been it's been an absolutely amazing growth story yeah i mean it's it's i think the maths element for me the first time i i sort of got introduced to brain labs or became aware of them the thing that stuck with me was and i don't know how true this is but the thing that stuck with me 
was what I kept getting told by people is they've just got smarter people. They've just got smarter people. They Everybody's got double maths first from Oxford and Cambridge. And you just have a, a, a culture of looking at marketing in a different way. Um, is, is, is that true? Is that sort of how you've seen it? Or is that something I've, I've sort of heard secondhand from someone? I think it's probably evolved quite significantly from there. So I think um, you know how I define smart marketers these days, and I do think that we've got some of the smartest. Is is really quite different to well the kind of double maths from Oxbridge that you referenced from from earlier. So um, a, a really different shape that brings a diversity of thinking, including people like that. Um, which you know in this in this day and age where marketing has become, I believe, not so linear necessarily, or or, or just kind of TV type ads. Um, uh, you have to combine skill sets together. Um, I think, you know, it's, 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 it's certainly true that we've got some exceptional people. The thing that I'd say is like, there's lots of brilliant businesses that are full of brilliant people. Um, but as much as anything else, I, I think an agency is about how you put those people together. So the culture and the reward structures and, uh, uh, you know, just even the practical processes and ways of working about how you kind of take those people. Cause you know, we could take someone that's smart out of another agency and make them a hundred percent better by, by putting them in the right type of environment. And I think, um, you know, that's why I wouldn't exclusively kind of pin it on the, like just a bunch of incredibly brilliant people. Like there are some brilliant people, but you know, you get more out of people when, when they work well together. I agree. So just, just on something you touched on there about taking people out of other agencies for us, historically, We've and, and we've hired some great people from other agencies, but on average, we've probably found it easier to train people that haven't been in marketing. So we can almost start again with them. Have you have you seen that? Do you do you find that sometimes thinking, you know, because you've been doing it for ten years in a different way, that sometimes it's harder to retrain the other agency people? Yeah, it's a great question. There's I mean, there's there's an element of that. Uh, I suppose kind of in, on a similar theme to your previous question, I think my thinking has evolved on that and that, that might be to do with the novelty of a channel, right? So when a channel, for example, is brand new and no one's ever really done it before and you have to f- kind of figure the whole lot out by yourself, then there is something brilliant about hiring hungry, ambitious people, not necessarily for experience, but for, for raw talent. Um, I think when you then evolve, and I think this has happened to us as we've kind of evolved our proposition to span more areas of marketing, actually you come back to recognizing that some of those traditional disciplines uh, uh, can equally be kind of redirected to um, to our kind of field of marketing, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does make sense. Um, so a question I've been asking several founders is around sort of working from home, how that's changing over COVID, work-life balance now. The reason I'm excited to ask you is because I I remember watching something um, where you said that you don't believe in work-life balance and you think that actually if you're looking for the balance, maybe there's something wrong with the work that you're doing in the first place. Um, I'd love to know if that's evolving or how, how you see that in a, in a COVID scenario where like work that work-life balance has very much merged as one thing now and what you think impact that's going to have on on you know how people work going forward i think there's like a few things based in there i think it probably comes from uh, an earlier statement which is not some deep philosophical insight i think it's more just that 
uh, people that crave the work-life balance, I think when they when they talk about it too much, it, yeah, I think to, to, to your kind of earlier statement, it sort of indicates that they don't enjoy work that much. Yeah. Um, and maybe that just is, is somewhat biased by me because work is part of my life and, and kind of has been for the last eight years. And um, if you if you don't enjoy it, then... Uh, uh, and and crave it in some ways and and get some excitement out of it then that's a pretty difficult way to live life so i've always sort of desired that for the other people that have worked with me because it makes it makes work and life a lot easier if if you kind of enjoy what you're doing um the covid thing is is a is a kind of tricky one right because the the situation that has been thrust upon us has kind of forced some thinking which is which is helpful in some ways but then we're also in this kind of false scenario where there's a forced work from home, which is not the same as working from home when when it's balanced against working from the office as well. Sure. Um, so, so I think it's like it's it's helped us look at and probably forced the issue in terms of work life balance because for a lot more people now work is evolving into life and and it's kind of interchanged. Uh, and there are some beautiful elements to that, right? Like you take a coffee break and hang out with your kids or family or um, uh, whoever else you're locked down with which is quite different to kind of water cooler chat and and commuting. So there's there's definitely some positive parts to it. I do agree, though, we're, we're in a false landscape. You know, when everyone is stuck at home, then it's easy to work from home because everyone's at home. But when everything starts to open up again, it will obviously be more difficult. Yeah, and I think within that, there's, there's this... I saw something very interesting that was a response to Facebook's announcement about their policy, which was... You know, kind of from the other side saying you know there's it's it's fine for senior executives to work from home but but um people that are building their careers part of that is is being able to network with senior people to be able to learn from other people and kind of walk the corridors and really understand what the dna of an organization is build a reputation for themselves um so it's not it's sort of you know it's 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 the the the, the, play, the playing field is leveled insofar as we're all working remotely to your point aaron but um, you know, when we're not all working from home, maybe it's not that it all kind of automatically translates back. So we've got some real thinking to do about that. And I think um, we've got some plans. I, th- I think it certainly won't be the same as it was previously. So that's an interesting. So you, you think you will, you will change. There will be a, a, a difference when you come out of this that you don't foresee. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to get you to say what it will be, but you see that it won't be the same as what it was. I, it most certainly won't be the same. I mean, we had um, in our US in the US portion of our business, about 40% of that business was was partly remote already, which you know I think was quite helpful. That hadn't been the case in our UK business. And that's probably more a location thing than anything else because um, there was a lot of our business centered around London. Uh, but then even on the... So that that influence was starting to spill over already. And I think people were coming, becoming comfortable with um, you know, the, the office space not being the exclusive workspace. Uh, I think at the very worst, uh, the, the impact will be that um, you know, working from home won't be immediately equated with absenteeism, uh, which I think is, is is a progressive step. And that certainly wasn't how it was in our mindset historically, but you sort of couldn't help that with seasoned managers. They sort of still think along those lines. Whereas now that we've all done it and seen it, it's like you can be super productive at home. Uh, in fact, sometimes more productive. Um, I think the way that I'm looking at this now or thinking about how we might carry it forward is just in terms of reframing what the office is, like, is there the potential for the office to be a workspace um, and a, sorry, a meeting space, uh, a collaboration space, as opposed to just a workspace? Exactly. That's a really interesting. That is exactly how we see it. Exactly. And we're, 
we've actually started to call them venues rather than offices. You know, we've had a, a 15,000 square foot office in central London for the last couple of years. And are we going to go and get another one like that? Definitely not. Could we? Could I see us getting something in southwest London, something in northwest, something in northeast, something in southeast, at like two, two and a half, three thousand square foot each, having it where maybe there's only five or six desks in each one? Because again, we don't want people coming in just to do their normal work. We want people coming in for meetings and then you know, spending the money making those meeting rooms. And that's why to call it venues, because it really becomes a, a meeting venue rather than a, a somewhere to just go and sit and do work. I think the days of banks and banks of desks are over. And, you know, I've been the biggest anti-work-from-home person you could ever meet. I mean, pre-COVID, nobody was allowed any flexibility. Like, <laughs> right, okay. Everybody yeah. was... Every day in the office, like, <laughs> someone was like, "Oh, I want to do you know a day a day a week from home." We'd just be like, "No, yeah. absolutely not." Yeah. Everyone has to be in the office, and so, like, my mind has genuinely been changed. Like, personally, I never thought I could work from home like this. I genuinely didn't. I thought that if I if we did this, that you know the business would would start to fall apart. And actually, there are areas that are going from strength to strength because of actually being virtual, people being forced to speak to each other more. The only downside that, that I can see already is the is the cultural side of it. You know, what, what I'm hearing from every employee is they're desperate to go back and they're desperate to see people. And, and I get that. Now, when you can do all of the other stuff and you can see your friends and everything else, will they be as desperate to go back? I don't know. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that's why it was, it's kind of this false dichotomy, right? Like it's, it's you know, they're, they're desperate to see their work friends, but that's also partly because they can't see any, or have their normal level of human yeah. interaction. So yeah. um, do they want to see their friends because they want to go and work with them or do they just want to go and hang out with them and, and you know, have a social arrangement, which is quite different, really? What, what, one thing that obviously off the back of that point, coming in there with the culture, obviously culture's huge for you guys at Brain Labs as well. How... How difficult has that been, sort of managing culture currently, like in in the situation we're in at the moment? Yeah, well, it's, it's an interesting question, right? Because it forces the the difference. And I've always I've always believed that there is a difference between location based cultural elements, and that's the kind of the office itself, and then the actual um, what I would call the real culture of the business, which is the values and the DNA. Uh, which I think we've been forced to think about even more so because we we merged with two other businesses in the last three to six months. So we've been we've not just had one culture to manage, but um, yeah. sort of three different cultures, maybe even four different cultures because of the different offices and locations around the world. So um, uh, it's been a really interesting period, uh, and I think you know actually quite helpful the the kind of work from home dynamic in terms of leveling the playing field and, and forcing some elements of that where. You know, we've had to think deeply about it, but in a, in a very kind of level playing field. So, um, you know, even for international calls, I think if you were um, typically there'd be a bias, right? Like if there's a bunch of people in a room and then a couple of people dialing in, then it's quite difficult for the people that have dialed in to really participate, to pick up on the cues on when they're supposed to speak and when they're supposed to not, et cetera, and build rapport. Um, I'm sure you've been in those and you, you don't want to be that person dialing in, do you? Um, whereas in this situation, actually, like we've leveled the playing field culturally and had a chance to sort of rewrite our value systems um, and what our culture is to us, um, uh, reflecting all three cultures that, that we've kind of merged together. 
It's a really interesting. It's a really interesting point. We've we've had a similar thing, but not not across different businesses, just across the different markets. So we're we're London, New York, Singapore, and I feel more connected to the global team now than I ever have done before because we're on the same. It is a level playing field, right? I can it, everything's through Google Hangouts or Zoom, or so I'm not closer to the U, UK team than I am the US team or Singapore or vice versa. So I, I, I completely see that it's actually a weird a weird leveling. Yeah, and I, I think you probably suffer from something that, that I recognized in myself as well, Aaron, because of just picking up on what you said about the office and insisting on people being there. It was like um, I had a similar type of mindset. And I think within there, I think um, I'm quite interested in, in unconscious biases. And I think one of the ones, whether or not it's like an official bias or not, that I'd suffered from was this proximity or availability bias, which was I love bouncing ideas off people, but I would generally choose the people that were closest to me uh, or available. So I would sort of jump out my office and pick the person that was closest to bounce an idea off. And, you know, that's sort of fine for a business of a certain size, but you start describing international businesses or businesses that have an ambition to scale further and actually you realize that that's that's not the best way necessarily to run an organization so positive in that regard a hundred percent so on on the same note we set up a um a disability agency last month with um co-founded by a guy called martin sibley who's if anyone's listening hasn't hasn't seen martin go and check him out he's incredible um that agency does the same as us but purely targeted at the disability community the work from home side of things will level the playing field for the disabled community mm. like never before, because that's the biggest prohibitor for, for lots of them is the commute, right? Yeah. So if you take the commute out, you take the requirement for people to be in a physical office, all of a sudden your talent pool is massively expanded. Like, Yeah, it's so interesting that you say that because I'd, you know, t- talking about unconscious bias, We'd we'd um, we'd noticed that we'd got to the stage, particularly in our London office, where you know it was getting to the point where statistically uh, it was becoming a question about where our representation was from uh, from certain portions of the disabled community. And we started looking at this, and there's not a huge amount that we can do about it because of where the office is located, which is literally on the uh, on the outside of the Old Street Station. So we started yeah. investigating this a little bit and we realized, of course, that there's no steps or disabled access uh, at Old Street Station. So it becomes a bit of a barrier for people to access that that particular office. And when we had built the entire agency around, let's say, that office, uh, you've got an unconscious bias in there that no one had really picked up on before. So it's a, it's a brilliant point. And, and actually, like you say, for, for a business like ours, an amazing opportunity to tap into a talent pool that we hadn't even realized was, was, was kind of um, off our... Um, our radar at the time yeah yeah and it's it's even from a geographic point of view you know we're we're hiring at the moment and for the first time we're not hiring based on geography mm. like we're, we're we're for the first time ever we're not mentioning where you need to be or any of that whereas the reality is if you if you haven't lived within an hour of our office you can't work for us like now we don't say that but that that is the reality <laughs> yeah. because it's too big a commute so you know, we've potentially expanded our, you know, people that could come and join us by 10 or 20 times by just expanding it to the rest of the country, for example. Amazing when you think about it, really, how, how dramatically that can change. And I know there's a lot of people saying that, oh, once things go back to normal, it will all be normal. But I, I do genuinely believe that we've been through a learning phase and, you know, we've learned things about ourselves, our habits and our businesses that will help us improve. So 
um, you know, tragic as, as the whole circumstances are, like we have to use every, uh, every downturn as a learning opportunity, which is, I think, what we'll take from this. Yeah, and I think the thing that can't be reversed is business owners have realized that the cost of their offices probably not worth it. You know what I mean? Like, I, God knows what you guys are spending on offices because it's, you know, they're, they're lovely. You know, for us, it's, it's, it's about a million pounds a year, you know, and to take that away from our, our P&L is a big difference. And now I'm not saying we won't have offices, but do we need to be spending, you know, a million pounds a year to, you know, as we grow two million, three million on, on physical space? I'm not sure. I'm just not so sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm certainly not sure when we'll see the return from it, you know. So the world's obviously gone to pot. Um, we're, we're seeing protests in in US that are, you know, rightful. And, and, you know, certainly my belief is that people should be protesting and people calling out a, a level of injustice across the world. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on, on what's going on in the US? How, how do you, what responsibility do you feel as a business owner in this situation? Yeah, I think as, as the role of businesses is changing, right? And I think there's an expectation from consumers, and this is probably more for B2C brands as opposed to ours, which are B2B in, in some instances. Uh, but there's an expectation that businesses and business owners, you know, taking the lead uh, uh, are, are more than sitting on the sidelines. And I think, you know, without going into politics, like it was never my intention or the intention of the business to to um, align with political parties or, or enter into politics in any way, shape or form. Um, but there are certain universal values that we carry into the business that are all about equal opportunities and opportunities for our staff to work safely. I agree. I don't think, um, actually don't think companies should get into politics. Um, and I think this is just beyond politics, isn't it? It's a, this is a right or wrong thing. You know, we have to make sure that, that, that we're saying that loudly. I've actually, and I, and I would advise other people to do it. It's the only advice I'm going to give. So over the last, you know, 24 hours or so, I've made sure that I've reached out to, to all of our BAME staff just to hear, just to listen really and, and, and make sure that they, they understand where we are here and that, that we can listen and help. And I, this isn't advice for you, Dan, but this is to anyone listening. If you're thinking, oh God, I'm not sure I should do that. I don't know how that will look. It, it was, it's the best thing that I've done in the last five years, the thing that's been received the best. So I would strongly advise you to um, to have those conversations and make sure that 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 people in your communities know that you're standing with them. Yeah, I think that was that, that's right, Aaron. For me, that was the most important thing is for our own staff to know that that we'll support them. You know, particularly if they feel discriminated against, and you know, we're, we're there for them. And and one of our values is backers of brain labbers, and um, uh, you know, the company needs to be there to support those people no matter what they're going through. Great. Okay. The I want to talk to you about leadership. Um, you know, the last, the last eight or 10 weeks has been so much uncertainty in, in, in the world and, you know, no one likes uncertainty. I think the best leaders give people that are on their teams clarity of the direction that they're going in, even if they don't necessarily, you know, even if that clarity changes, you know what I mean? No, but like a plan is better than no plan, if that makes sense. How, how have you dealt with? with that uncertainty how have you been able to to sort of come to the decisions that you'll inevitably have had to make over the last um you know eight to ten weeks decisions that you know obviously none of us could have foreseen um what's what's been your your leadership approach to that yeah i'm, I'm sort of in my element to a certain degree um 
Uh, I love an opportunity to lead the organization forward and, and kind of thrive in those scenarios. I think there was, um, was it uh, Ben Horowitz's wartime peacetime CEO? Uh, and, you know, I don't appreciate the necessarily d- d- division between those two ideas. I think you have to kind of flip between the two constantly. Uh, but when COVID hit, that was definitely time to bring out the wartime CEO and all of the language that kind of goes with that because, mm. uh, you know, laying out very clearly to the whole organization, this is what we're facing and this is how we're going to get through it, uh, uh, was a key part, I believe, of just, just giving people the level of comfort that they, that they needed, stopping people panicking and getting them, you know, directed in the right way to achieving what we needed to. Um, so we even called, you know, I think it was, it was called our battle plan. Uh, it laid out that we were in an unprecedented recession, that, that many businesses would fail and that we were fighting for survival. And I think that was, you know, early on in the, in the crisis when we weren't sure where it would land. No one knew where it would land, right? We saw a downward trend line very yeah. rapidly in, in all corners of our business and no one knew that it would stop. It's kind of easy to say in retrospect. So I think when you think about it, and, and I don't always love war analogies uh but um you know it was i think that's kind of you know that's kind of how we framed it and in a war intelligence and speed and i say intelligence not as an attribute but as a as as intel uh are mission critical protecting your troops is critical and rallying together uh particularly remotely was was one of the key things that we kind of all needed to do so um, you know, we pulled together all the information that we could as quickly as we could across all three different or four different businesses that kind of were at the time or P&Ls. We launched an unforgiving assault on outgoing cash, uh, communicated quickly and clearly and laid out how we were going to get through this. And uh, thankfully, we, we absolutely did. And I think in many ways, we would have come out the other side much stronger as a business. I, yeah, I think, you know, many businesses in our space, you know, should, should come out positively in this i think it's i actually haven't read the ben horowitz thing but i six months ago somebody called me a wartime ceo (laughs) and i thought and i actually i when they 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 said it to nick cook our my co-founder in new york and i think they were saying it as like a slight to be honest right i mean i haven't read it so i don't know what the descriptions are of each one but i hadn't heard of it before the wartime peacetime ceo and and uh, as soon as COVID happened, all I thought in the back of my head was, I'm a wartime CEO. <laughs> I've got this. This is, this is perfect. You know, I've got no idea what the description is, but somebody thinks I am that. So I very much, as soon as it all happened, I thought, oh, great, here we go. <laughs> it's not a slight necessarily. I mean, it's like, it's, I think his, the, you know, the fundamental premise is that different, different styles are required for different times within a business and different stages of a business. And, uh, you know, you probably have that understand that you've got co-founders, right? So there's, there's an element yeah. of balancing that potentially even within a team as opposed to necessarily an individual person. Oh, and I think that's definitely the case. I, I think, you know, if I'm the wartime CEO, Nick Cook is definitely the peacetime one. And Harry's probably somewhere in the middle. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'd agree with that. If I had to give you all roles, yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> we have to say who you like the most as well. Now, now you're now you're picking hairs. Now that's a that's a difficult one. Well, it's an obvious one, right? Because the wartime CEO doesn't crave to be liked. So <laughs> very true, very true, very true. But sometimes doesn't that, even want to be liked. Yeah, exactly. It's so interesting because those conversations you have, I know that a conversation I'd have with Harry would be completely different. Aaron, like Aaron wants to know exactly what facts I'm giving him and whether everything's there and everything's going to be okay. And then I know Aaron's going to be like, okay, great, fantastic. And then he'll want to know exactly what's going to be like, you know, he, he's going to want to know, 
are, are you with me on this? Aren't you with me on this? You're not with me on this. All right, then fine. I'm going to find someone that is on, on my wavelength. <laughs> you don't mind me saying that, do you, Aaron? No, I agree. I think we're, you know, I think one of the big advantages of, for me, so I've, I've this is called the sort of my fourth business. And I've, I've, I've been a solo founder. I've been um, a part of a duo. And I've had two where I've been a part of a trio. And for me, I love the, the trio side of it. Um, I, I particularly over the last 10 weeks, I think the value of, you know, I'm so grateful. I'm, it's not all on me. You know what I mean? I've got two other people to share it with. You're a solo founder. Um, is it just water off your back or, or are there times when you think, God, I wish there was someone to good and bad. I wish there was someone to share this that really was in exactly the same because we're equal founders. It's three of us are equal. Um, so that there's never a, um, a situation where we're not in exactly the same boats. How do you deal with that? Do you, you obviously get a lot more equity, so that's good. Yeah. I think in like the very early days I did, you know, there's obviously pros and cons, but I, there were times where I missed that, where it was, where it was a case of, Hey, where's the person that's kind of living and dying by this in the same way that I am, um, you know, the business has evolved so much that I'm, and I'm, I'm so fortunate now to just be surrounded by people who are in the same boat, albeit as part of uh, a different stage within the journey. They've kind of, they've kind of joined as part of a, of a new chapter, let's say. So we're kind of all in it together in that chapter. Um, so I've, I think it's probably changed dramatically in some ways for me over the years. Insofar as you no, know, I do definitely get that support network now, and I don't, I don't even feel necessarily like a, I wouldn't even use the term founder necessarily anymore. Um, uh, I, I mean, I am the founder of the business, but it's 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 sort of it's become less relevant, I guess, as the business has has grown up. Um, uh, so I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't worry about it anymore. I've got such amazing people around me, and, and they're so brilliant and sharing sharing in that journey with me that that I don't necessarily crave it anymore. Um, but I think maybe maybe we're past startup stage. Is, is... yeah, well, that's that was going to be my question for those founders out there that are in the the earlier stage maybe they've got 10 15 people they haven't started to to bring on um you know those sort of more experienced heads to help you at what stage did you start to bring those people in that you know that startups are not going to go and bring a an ex-chairman of a company in to come and be on their board for example when there's 10 or 15 people i'm not sure that's the best thing when did you start to add those people around you do you know it's it's hard to trace back precisely in history, but you met Jim Brigden, who's our yeah. Uh, he's actually he's he's actually um, an exec director, so he's executive within the business. But um, when I think when I think when he first started, it was more uh, in a kind of non-exec role, advisory role, uh, and then we somehow sucked him into back to full-time life, um, uh, uh, which you know he's he's secretly happy about, I think. Um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, the first time I met Jim, he was an advisor, and then the next time I met him, he he was there every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, was, he just he couldn't help himself. He loved it so much. Um, I'm sure he's got a different way of telling the story, but uh, I think that was that was quite a transformative moment for me. Uh, uh, and I think maybe just because Jim and I were so brilliantly matched, like he's he's got a perfect style about him about influencing and guiding without necessarily telling. Uh, and, you know, I wish I had done that earlier. I think we did that in, what was it, year uh, five or six. Um, 
uh, I think when you find the right person, like we weren't even hiring for that role. I think it was someone had just introduced us and said, oh, you should meet because you get them really well. Um, and I was like, well, what's this like extra role and we're paying more money, but what's this for? And I don't really, I sort of didn't really understand it, but in retrospect, you know, I obviously still decided that it was the right thing to do. Uh, and in retrospect, I think, you know, if I, if we'd done that maybe two years earlier, it might've helped me, uh, think faster, uh, in terms of, you know, the direction that we were going and how we were bringing everyone along with that, with that journey. Okay. So you see a value in getting them on as early as, you know, as early as you the business can do it essentially yeah I, th- I think so and like, there's there's lots of different forms of that um uh, it doesn't necessarily need to need to be a huge time commitment or cost commitment uh but but having having someone to challenge your your thinking as a business whether whether you're a single founder or, or trio um uh, to me has been it's a, it's a helpful way of effectively hearing back your own voice about what you think is right for the business and but actually having someone to really challenge that um so no i mean i would highly recommend it it's got to be the right person that you trust implicitly uh, and that's the hard piece which is why i would search far and wide for the right person um uh, but but really that's been amazing and, and a key part of our growth story really interesting um i want to talk to you just quickly before i'm aware that we're running out of time um i want to talk to you about success and where that ends um you know you're hugely successful have been hugely successful over the last eight years um i'm aware that you've had I'm not sure of the, the fine details but i'm aware that there's been an event recently which is obviously the 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 merge that you're talking about where's the finish line for you personally so you know it's it's interesting because i'd probably have different answers to that uh, at different stages but um i came to realize that there is there is no finish line and um you know part of being successful is learning to enjoy the journey I think there's a brilliant book um, called The Happiness Advantage uh, by a guy called Sean Aker, and he's got a he's got a TED talk that's worth watching if you don't want to read the whole book, but it's 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 definitely worth a read, and I give it to friends and colleagues whenever I can. Uh, and he talks about like this the formula for happiness uh, effectively being a bit warped in Western society. So there's this concept effectively that like. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to, you know, it starts all the way back from school. Like if I work really hard, I'll I'll get good results in my exams and if I get good results in my exams, I'll get into a great school. And if I get a great school then um and I do really well there, then I'll get a great job and then if I do really well in that job, then I'll make partner. And and it's that type of logic that can follow you through to to 50 years old before you've stopped to actually enjoy whatever that perceived success actually is. Um so Sean's kind of take on this is like Actually, you could you can inverse that, which is the, the the sooner that you learn to become happy, and it is a skill that can be trained uh, uh, and developed, uh, then actually the more successful that you become off the back of that. And um, you know that's something that I've carried over into my own life because you know you could look at any stage of the business and say, oh, you're really successful, uh, uh, and I've I've never really had that mindset. I've never thought that I'm necessarily successful, uh, and maybe that's part of not feeling like I'm actually done uh, or that there is any such thing as done. Um, so success to me really is that I enjoy what I'm doing, that I enjoy the people that, I'm work, that I work with and I'm helping accelerate their careers, um, uh, that we're making a, a positive impact on the world in some way. You know, to me, that's, and, and obviously outside of work, have a happy and healthy family, and that, that to me is success. Um, so I, I, I think I am successful, uh, but maybe not just from the kind of external factors that you would look at and say, oh yeah, it's, it's you know, the business success. I, I, I think that was really, really well said. I couldn't agree more. Um, 
I, I think it's interesting. I've, I've also, we have never, ever thought that we're successful. I've never once, like, however well GOAT does, it's never the metric for me. Um, it's, it's weird. It's other little tiny things that make me feel that way. Mm. Um, I don't know, like it's, it's never the numbers. Like we did a pitch three months ago in, I can't even remember. The whole thing was in a language, not a common language. It was done by none of the senior team at goats. It was, and it was just, it was the first time where I felt like it had fully gone beyond us. And that gave me a huge amount of pride. Um, because things that people do that we've sort of had a very small part in, but they do it, that actually weirdly gives me much bigger, you know, the, the profit and loss will never be enough. You know what I mean? In some ways, if you're chasing a number, you'll, every time you hit that number, there'll be another number. But it is something that, that you know, I've struggled with, you know, and still do struggling to, you know, when's enough, when's the right time, when's the when's the balance you know how do you find that balance i've got two little kids i know i know you've got little ones as well how do you how do you balance you know the hours that you have to put into the business versus the hours that you should give into them and you know it is it is challenging um you know trying to see it as all sort of one and the same thing i think is this is the answer certainly trying to accept where you are in the journey um but how, what's your one, one bit of advice to people in order to do that? How do people get themselves present to enjoy the journey rather than chasing the, the sort of success hurdles? I think it's like, it's, it, you know, part of it comes from understanding yourself better and, you know, applying the type of strategic rigor that one might apply to a client's marketing campaigns, for example, but doing that to yourself and doing it critically. Uh, and when you actually look back at your own life, uh, you know, when, when you've been your most successful or your most happy or your most content or most turned on, uh, uh, very few people would observe that that necessarily relates to particular milestones, uh, um, you know, relate more to the state of feeling like you're in a, in a growth mode, for example, that you're learning and challenging yourself and getting better uh, or helping other people, um, or helping them challenge themselves more. Um, uh, and it's kind of through that self-understanding or self-awareness that I think you can get to this this kind of position that that helps you realise what, what I mean. For some people, it is entirely about the milestones. By the way, like I'm not I'm, it, this is not judgmental. It was just for me, it was it was helping to understand or helping myself to understand that um, uh, you know I wasn't going to link this to one particular event or one final outcome. Um, but that for me, the, the the kind of juice or the magic is is when I'm in a position that the business is growing, which is challenging me to grow, uh, and and also challenging all the other people that have chosen to work in our business and, and helping them evolve in their careers. And and that's you know that's the kind of magic for me. Like everything else that kind of surrounds it. If I've got those things going for me, then then you're sort of happy days. Yeah, that's a great philosophy. Okay, I've got I've got one last question, um, and I'd be remiss not to ask because. We obviously have marketing agencies. What sort of away from the founder, uh, the founder side of it, the leadership side, look, going at just marketing in in twenty twenty and what's going to happen from a from a thirty thousand foot view here? What do you? How do you think the world is going to change over the next two or three years? How do you think that's going to affect? different marketing channels how do you think that's going to change from a not just from a the world's going to you know tech wise but from a marketing point of view what changes 
are you seeing now and what do you think is going to happen over the next few months and years? Yes, I mean, it's super interesting. I think if you're if you're not currently investing in influencer marketing with a go agency, then then you're going nowhere. There you go. The checks in the post. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> There's the line. Oh no. Likewise with all your paid media and brain labs. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think um, you know the, the the kind of bit that I spoke about in terms of the founding story of brain labs. Uh, you know, we can sort of take that full circle because you know we're in this we're in this world now where the the way that consumers are interacting with brands is completely different. Say completely different. Sorry, I want to be a bit more nuanced about that. Um, there are now lots of different ways to interact with brands. And actually, some of them remain exactly as they used to be 30 years ago. There are just novel ways to do that. So I think it's quite an important distinction. It's not like then and then and now. Uh, I think it's just that whereas there might have been two or three ways to build a brand in 1970, there's now 100 different ways and they're all perfectly valid. Uh, uh, some of them more modern than other, and some of them some of them more likely to be present in the future. Let's say, um, uh, but I don't want to fall in that kind of dangerous pattern of saying things like you know TV or brand building on TV is dead because it's it's not. It's alive and well, and there's it's a perfectly valid way to build a brand. Um, uh, I think you know the space that that, that you're in is is genuinely exciting um, as a novel way to build brands, and it's it reflects the way that consumers or modern consumers are interacting or want to interact with brands. Um, so I think uh, you know, th- th- there's th- you know with each with each new way to build brands comes a level of complexity, and I think the, the winners are the people that are going to be able to build or, or tie that all together uh, with a with a view of how that impacts and tie, sort of t- t- how that impacts profitability. Um, and my my latest thinking uh, is around how experimental marketing can drive bottom line profit and top line revenue growth. And I think that for me, that would be one of the most exciting ways that marketing can develop over the next few years is, is to become a profit center, not a cost center. So I've seen lots of marketing commentators decrying the lack of seniority of CMOs, for example, and, and you know, why can't they get the big jobs and you know, why are they ignored or why are their budgets cut or this kind of thing. Um, and to me, it's really quite straightforward. It's like the, the, the more that marketers can align what they do and where they're spending money with actual results and impact on businesses. And I don't just mean performance marketing. I mean, um, you know, even brand building in the long term, uh, uh, you know, it's, it might use different metrics, but it should still come down to this concept, in my opinion, of tracking back to some sort of long-term profitability, uh, aka sustainability. Like profit is, is, is a sanity metric. It, it helps you understand that what you're doing in the business is, is sustainable. Um, uh, so I think I you know, um, the more and more that we see of that, um, uh, you know, marketing being linked to earnings and saying it proudly, like we're here to help make more money, um, not sort of sheepishly because it sort of sounds anti-creative. Uh, uh, it's like do brilliant marketing that's ingenious, but but ultimately, like you know, if you can't link that back somehow to to the earnings of a business, then um, you know it's not really marketing; it's it's art. Hundred percent. I mean, that's I think, yeah. I was just about to say, like, with, with marketing agencies, if you're not saying that you're here to help make profit for you at the moment, then you are, yeah, you're, you're just falling on deaf ears and you're going into that category of the the old agencies, the mad men of let's make something that looks nice and people might start talking about it. If you're not going to sort of follow that funnel all the way down to where, you know, the profit and where, what is actually making you money in regards to communication, then I think... Uh, 
you're 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 missing out and you're you're completely missing the mark yeah i mean i mean even even just building on that like that that type of advertising i i i I don't think it's dead. Quite the opposite. I think there's more room than ever before for absolute ingenious creativity. Um, mad men and mad women um, uh, coming up with, with you know, cutting concepts that have no logical or rational explanation whatsoever. It's just a piece after that, right? Like you have to be able to link that back to some sort of customer impact that's not like built on vanity metrics about brand recall, uh, uh, but that's that's that goes one level deeper. So if brand recall is an important metric, then you know tie that back to repeat purchase patterns and tie that back to lifetime customer value, and therefore tie it back to to profitability or EBITDA or shareholder value. And I think you know that that for me is where the kind of sweet spot is landing. That that is obviously partly forced by uh, a recession if we're in one, uh, uh, which I think we are. Um, uh, and and in some ways that's that's healthy for me. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean that's. Because we, none of us, none of the three founders have ever worked at another agency. We, we all came out of my previous business. So for us, it was always every marketing agency should be about delivering business results for their clients mm. like that. Now, some people then think, oh, does that mean you don't believe in brand? No, of course not. Of course we believe in brand. You can't get business results if your brand is shit. But having just looking at the work just brand work over here and then on the other side just performance marketing is crazy like it has to be pushed together you have to understand what the whole thing's doing from a performance point of view so i agree with you there's there's i think the madness is actually needed but madness by itself doesn't do anything and like what gets celebrated in can is the maddest ideas and i the only the only cans that I actually like, as in from an awards point of view, are the effectiveness ones, where it's based on like this campaign affected sales over a two years two, sales and, and bottom line over a two year period. Like if you've run a mad creative and it's then driven an increase in sales over two years, brilliant. But if you run a mad creative and it hasn't, it's not a good campaign. Uh, irrelevant of whether everyone in the ad industry thinks it's a good campaign or not. Um, but I, you know, I, I think that madness is great and we, you know, I, I'm, I don't believe in actually getting rid of any of the mix. I just think it needs to be reorganized. I think, you know, higher budgets need to go into certain things and lower budgets into other things. And that's what, you know, but I don't believe in getting rid of radio or TV or any channel. I think every channel serves a purpose, but you need a holistic approach that, is centralized that 20 years ago that had to be centralized around tv and now going to what you're saying there's hundreds of ways to do that and you know that's really what we're trying to push is just you know rethink your mix you know based on the fact that your consumer base has changed their habits rather than throw everything away yeah 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 it doesn't render anything else pointless i think it's um you know, it's just there's 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 new ways of reaching people, and we should we should take advantage of those. And I think that will that will, you know, we don't know exactly what that will look like in three to four years, but I'm sure there will be additional ways to reach people that we haven't even thought of or dreamt of yet. Um, uh, and and I think the job of a marketing agency and of brilliant marketers is to understand those and understand if that's the right way to build whichever brand they're building. Yes, exactly, exactly. And it'd be right for some and not right for others as well. There's certainly not a a one size fits all solution. Um, okay, great. Well, I am. I don't want to keep you here 
um, any longer because I know you're a very busy man. But just from me, before I hand over to Sam, really, really appreciate the time. Oh, pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. Pleasure to be here. Absolute pleasure. Yeah, it's been fantastic, uh, Dan. Thank you so much for joining us. If you want to find out uh, more about Dan and his work, search for him on LinkedIn or go search for Brain Labs in your search bar. Uh, for myself and Aaron, uh, you can find us at the Go Agency or LinkedIn or on YouTube where we vlog our agency's work daily, even working from home. We're still vlogging. Um, and uh, thank you for joining us on the 30,000 foot view. Uh, do subscribe to our other podcasts coming out of the Go Agency as well. And in the meantime, uh, stay alert and listen to podcasts. Why not? You've got nothing else to do at home. 